Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm talking with Travis Reeder. He is a research scholar and the director of the Master of Bioethics degree program at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Today, we're discussing his book, In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. Travis, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So um, what inspired you to, to put this book together? I mean, obviously, it's about your own personal journey, but what made you think that your journey was important to share? Well, so I, you know, I had this injury in 2015 uh, after a motorcycle accident, and, and then I had this, um, this battle when I tried to withdraw from the opioids. And for a while, I didn't think I would share it. It, it felt very personal and... Um, I didn't really have any interest in making the personal all that public, um, but it was pretty traumatic uh, for me and for my family, and so we slowly started telling friends and family about what we had gone through trying to get off these medications, and eventually it got to the point where we said it to somebody who was a, a colleague at Johns Hopkins, and he said, you know, I certainly can't. I certainly can't tell you that, you know, you have to share this, but if you could bring yourself to share this, you know, people really might be able to learn from your experience. And that's what planted the seed for me. Um, and, and after that moment, I really couldn't shake what he said because, um, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it with the name of your podcast, right, but I had fallen through the cracks <laughs> of this really complex healthcare system that we have. And it was in a way that if I had fallen through the cracks with all sorts of privileges that I had, being a faculty member at Johns Hopkins, having a really supportive uh, family, if I had fallen through the cracks, then surely lots of other people had as well. Um, and so then I started to feel really responsible for speaking out, um, and, and I eventually got myself to do that through writing about it. Well, you know, this is why I do this show. I had fallen through the cracks for a completely different reason. And um, I want to empower people more with these stories and with our our war on drugs that's happening in, in North America right now, especially America. Um, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, talked to Ben Westhoff about the black market aspect of opioids. And definitely I, I learned a lot there. But, you know, there there is also a lot of blame on patients like yourself who are prescribed opioids and um, then continue to struggle with them. And and from what I got from your book, you know, it, it seemed very unfair that there was also blame there. And, and we will get into this. But, but first, I want to talk about what actually happened in your journey, why this was a struggle for you. Well, so the short answer to why it was a struggle for me is that uh, opioids have this property that they cause dependence when you take them. And um, we have to be really careful when we talk about that because sometimes people hear dependence and they think addiction. Um, but, but physiological dependence is just something that happens to everybody who takes opioids, which is to say um, our brains, when they're in the presence of a lot of opioids, try to adjust because they're really fantastic learning machines. And so they don't want you uh, to be sedated all the time, to be incapacitated all the time. And so the brain tries to adjust to the presence of opioids. And what that means is that for most people, if you've developed this dependence on opioids, that if you then discontinue them uh, too abruptly or try to taper too fast, you go into withdrawal. And that's the, the thing that people are familiar with because you've seen you know, heroin withdrawal depicted in, in TV and the movies. So what happened to me is I had this fairly traumatic motorcycle accident. I had my left foot crushed and, and um, not to be too graphic, but it had kind of been blown apart. So a lot of soft tissue damage and shattered bones. And so over the course of a month, I had several surgeries in several different hospitals, lots of kind of re-traumatizing the wound through continued cutting and prodding and, um, you know, trying to put this foot back together. 
And it was something of a miracle that, that the doctor succeeded. This was a mangled extremity that they thought they might have to amputate, and, and they were able to reconstruct it partially by taking tissue from elsewhere in the body. But these really complex surgical processes like this um, take so much analgesia, so much pain relief, and opioids are the, you know, the biggest cannon we have to fire at pain. So when you have this really severe pain from you know, cutting your body open and doing these you know, invasive procedures, you end up on really high doses of opioids. So for me, I took all of these opioids because it has this property of dependence formation. Um, by the end of a couple of months, I was profoundly dependent on the medication. And then, uh, crucially, I was given terrible advice about how to get off the medication. And so when I followed this advice, uh, I, I tapered much too quickly, and it sent me into to really terrible withdrawal. So that's the, that's the backstory. So when you went through withdrawal, what kind of support did you have from your um, doctors and surgeon team to stop your medication properly? Somewhere between none and, um, you know, negative. (laughs) (laughs) The support that that we did get was harmful rather than helpful. And and why I say that is um, the prescribing doctor, so the plastic surgeon who was kind of the last one left holding me, you know, when I decided to taper, um, he's the one who gave me the bad advice. And so he said, reduce, you know, your current daily dose cut it in four and drop a quarter of your current daily dose each week for four weeks, and then you'll be off the meds. Um, and just for anybody who listening, listening who might stop at this point, you should know that that's terrible advice, right? That's, that's far too mm-hmm. bad to taper, at least to initially try out. And so that sent me into withdrawal immediately. And then he was really the only one that we could get a hold of. So he was kind of seen as my physician, and so, you know, as I got very, very sick and would call him, you know, largely my partner, Sadia, would call him and say, you know, you have to do something. He's, he's in terrible withdrawal. Uh, he quickly came to realize that he was out of his depth and he didn't know how to advise us. But his recommendation was to find a pain doc, someone who specializes in pain medicine. And we could not get anybody from the healthcare system to take responsibility for me. And I'd been in three different hospitals. I had several surgical teams. I had many, many clinicians, surgeons, um, PAs, nurse practitioners. I had all of these different clinicians, and we could not get a single person to really talk to us and give us good advice. The only thing that anybody would say to us is, well, if it's that bad, if the withdrawal is that bad, then he should just go back on his previous dose for a while and stabilize and try again later. And that was the only advice we could get. So when, when you were calling around, I, I mean, in your story, you guys were um, uh, it, pretty proactive. It's not like you called a couple doctors and said, okay, we're on our own. You actually called um, many clinics. You called addiction clinics. And you you'd definitely, I think this, you actually have a comment about falling through the cracks in your book. And I think it was around here. Um, and you what happened, so you were calling doctors, but then you called addiction clinics because that's where you were sent. So what happened when you were in conversation with them? Yeah, so so basically this was a big game of hot potato, right? So um, my prescribers quickly said, okay, you're out of my, I'm out of my depth. You're past my level of expertise. Go see pain medicine. So we would call pain medicine, and then just what blew our minds was that the pain medicine doctors who had started us on this really aggressive regimen, which which I had definitely appreciated when I was post-surgery, right? Um, they wouldn't even talk to us because their claim was that they are an inpatient team and their service is just to get pain under control and they do not deal with tapering or withdrawal management. And so it was when we called another pain management clinic to try to find someone who would help us they said something similar, that they only do prescribing, they don't do tapering. And when we begged them and said, you know, like, who's going to take care of me? Like, these are pain medicines and you're pain docs. Um, they said, well, look, it sounds like you're a problem for addiction medicine. Why don't you call, why don't you call them? And it hadn't occurred to us to call addiction medicine just because that didn't seem to us like what I was dealing with. Um, so, yes, I was withdrawing, and people associate withdrawal with addiction, but I wasn't craving the meds. I wasn't taking more than I needed. You know, I had a house full of pills 
that I was choosing not to take. And so it, you know, not to be defensive, but it's just, as a matter of fact, it just didn't seem like that's what I was dealing with. But when they said that, they're like, well, hey, if they'll, if they'll help me, I'll do that. Um, and so this one receptionist had actually said, you know, you sound like you need to call a methadone clinic. And the fact that she said that means that either she didn't know what she was talking about or she thought that I was really in the depths of a, a full-blown addiction because when I called the methadone clinic, just, you know, I was desperate. I would call anyone who would help. You know, they very kindly and very gently said, you know, you're not our problem. We deal with patients who are at fatal risk of, you know, if they don't get help, they might go buy fentanyl-laced heroin and overdose today. And and I'm sorry you're withdrawing, but, you know, you just took your prescribed medications and now you just need help getting off of them. That's not what we do here. We put people on to methadone for long-term maintenance treatment. And so I said to this very sweet receptionist who kind of explained that to me, I said, so whose job am I? And I was probably crying because I was crying a lot these days. And she said, well, I don't know. The doctor who prescribed you the pills, I mean, surely they know what to do, right? <laughs> so I just went in this tight little circle. Everybody handed me off to the next person until I got back to the beginning. Well, I, 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 this is so important for us to understand this because um, when opioids come up in conversation and, and since, you know, your book and, and Ben Westhoff's book, I'm really passionate about this. It's actually um, making me very angry now that I understand more and I was pretty upset about it before. But I, I think it's important to understand that you weren't taking medication above what you were prescribed and you weren't given any help then to get off of it and you were severely dependent. And, you know, if you and you say you were privileged, you had a family that was helping you and, and you know, you actually had resources that at the time you didn't reach out to, but you could have at John Hopkins. And and so if you were in this situation, what is the general public going to be like if they're in the same situation but with less resources? I mean, this is, I think, creating our, our opioid crisis right now. Yeah, I mean, that was the question that kept me awake at night. You know, there, there was, I kind of forget about it now. Well, I, for, I forget about a lot of what happened during that time thanks to, you know, drugs and trauma. But but I, I kind of wash over the fact that it, it actually was some number of months that I really agonized about whether I would ever tell anyone because it certainly shouldn't be the case that there is stigma around this conversation. And the way that I know that that affected me is that I was completely comfortable telling my colleagues about my shattered foot and my colleagues who are doctors were very interested to kind of geek out about my terrible x-rays and to talk about, you know, the medical miracle that is my reconstructed foot. But I never talked to them at the beginning about the dependence and the withdrawal. And so even though I thought about it as, you know, it feels private, like the only way I can make sense of the way in which it felt private was that I had internalized this stigma, you know. So I spent a decent amount of time really wrestling with whether or not I would share this very intimate story about myself and exactly what you note, this fact that if I went through this, surely I'm not the only one. And another way in which, you know, my case is an exception is that I was at world-class hospitals on the East Coast in big cities, right? So I also, there's reason to think I was getting some of the best care that you can get in the United States, right? They... They reconstructed my foot from pieces of my thigh. Like, this is an amazing amount of medical work. And so if, if I, with all of my good fortune, at these hospitals that are doing cutting-edge medicine and being just absolutely abandoned at this crucial moment, what's happening all across the country for people at, you know, small-town clinics and regional outpatient centers? They were then driving three hours home to their rural, you know, house. Like, that's the question. And it turns out I now know the answer because I've now been public about my story since January 2017 when I published my first paper. And I've gotten a decent amount of for it. And every time a story of mine goes up to where it's getting, hitting a broad audience, you know, when my TED Talk went up on, on TED.com and 
hundreds of thousands and then millions of people had access to it. My inbox floods with Me Too stories. Like, this is my life now, that every day I get emails from strangers saying, I'm not crazy. I started to think I was crazy because no one could believe that I would have just been abandoned like this. I'm not crazy because I heard you say it, right? So, yeah, this is absolutely common. And it's not every patient. Like, we should be clear. Some patients get decent opioid therapy care, but it's just way too common. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Travis Reeder and we're discussing his book, In Pain, and we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you ready to live to 100? Join Dr. Joe Casciani and his program that shows us that age is just a number. You can age with fresh and inspiring perspectives, whether it's staying physically fit or keeping mentally fit. With great stories, plenty of advice about successful aging, and brighter outlooks, you just might join those who are living to 100. The Living to 100 Club is broadcast live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Travis Reeder, and we're discussing his book, In Pain. Now, Travis, when you in your book are describing your journey to um, to stop the medication, you're given advice actually more than once to, you're, you know, you're suffering with all these symptoms, and, and the doctors tell you just go back to your last dose so that you can stop suffering. And um, you flat out said no, which was a really strong intuition, because you later, I think, learned that by going back, you can actually increase your dependence, if I'm correct. But, you know, I, I wonder what would happen to people who don't, um, who aren't as stubborn as you. I think that would be a really good word, because um, no, most people wouldn't want to suffer the way that you did. And, and you know, then they're stuck in this cycle with, with bad information and going back, you know, um, up and down on their medication. What happens to those people? Um, it's incredibly hard, and, and I certainly hear from a lot of these patients. Uh, I work with clinicians who work closely with a lot of these patients. And, um, you know, I think a really important thing to note is that not being able to successfully taper doesn't mean that you're weak. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It's incredibly hard, and it's probably far, far harder for many people than it was for me. Um, it was it was terrible for me. It was the worst thing I've ever been through, <laughs> and that includes getting my foot blown apart. Um, but I was only on these meds for about two months, and you know I've now spent years looking at the science, and, and two months is more than enough time to develop a really profound dependence. 
But a lot of patients are on these meds for years. Now, you know, we've been prescribing aggressively for decades. And so I've talked to patients who have been on opioids since 1996, 1998. Um, and because you often need to increase the dose to keep up with the pain relief, this is the phenomenon of tolerance. You know, some of these patients are on just astronomical doses, and so the taper, if they were to try it, would take an incredibly long time. So all that's to say, it's it's not not uh, hard to understand why a taper could be unsuccessful. And I I hear from folks who find a lot of shame in that that they think they're just so weak, and it's just really understandable. But as you know. Reversing a taper can be fairly dangerous because what you do when you reverse a taper is you reinforce the medication, the drug, as a reward. And that's the same sort of activity that can build toward addictive pathways in your brain. So it's, it's a really delicate balance. Um, you don't want to ride yourself too hard for failure, um, but it is important. So the CDC and their tapering advice explicitly says the physicians never reverse a taper. You can pause as long as a patient needs if they're really struggling, but you shouldn't go back to the dose precisely because of this reward effect. So by reward effect, you mean that uh, teaches us that, let me rephrase that, that will create an addiction. So if we understand addiction properly, it's kind of a reward for the craving. Is that right? So then you go through this struggle, but then you feel good because you take the medication? Yeah. So there are lots of different ways that you can um, create a reward, right? And so opioids have this euphoric, uh, can create this sense of euphoria. And so if you, you know, pop an oxycodone right now, if you're like a lot of people, you'd feel really good as a result. You get this feeling of warmth and any pains that you have kind of melt away and you feel very relaxed and you might get a nice nap and, you know, et cetera. So the way I always think about it, and it turns out this is really common, is I just felt like I was cozied up in the warmest of blankets and all of my pain went away. So that euphoria uh, itself is a reward. But what's really, you know, double-edged about opioids is that when you take them away, they cause pain and suffering through withdrawal. And so not only does taking the opioid give you a reward, which teaches your brain this is a good thing to be pursued, but then taking it away makes you hurt. And so if you rescue yourself from that suffering by taking the medication, that's one more time that you teach your brain that this is a good thing to be pursued. And so it, it will, it's not the case that it will inexorably cause addiction. That's not the way addiction works. There's no straight line, and different people have different susceptibilities. But if you are the kind of person who has a you know, higher risk of developing an addiction, that is precisely the sort of activity that can reinforce the pathway in your brain that you know, it's going to become even more irresistible, and you're going to have more kind of cravings, and you'll have more likelihood of developing a compulsion to take this drug. Well, no, and you only took them for two months. I'm guessing um, you had a, a high dose because of what you went through. And you talk about um, five surgeries before you taper off. So um, in in a five-week period, which is extremely painful. But you weren't on them for very long and you still had this difficulty. So it, it makes me wonder if just by taking them at all, we're creating these addictions that, that we're now um, so against in our society to, you know, we have this war on drugs and, and we're blaming opioid patients for part of this. And um, I don't, it seems like you just don't have a chance if you're prescribed them. Well, you know, so on the one hand, I don't want us to be defeatist about it because there's, you know, everybody who takes opioids at a high enough dose for long enough will develop this physiological dependence, which means it's harder to get off them. But a relatively small percentage will actually develop an addiction. And depending on which research you're looking at, that small percentage is kind of anywhere from less than 1% to about 10%. And a pretty commonly cited figure is something like 5 or 6%. Now, that's not nothing. Like, that's a high enough risk that we should be really concerned with it. Um, but we can do things to mitigate that risk. And so one of the things that I spend a lot of my career doing now is educating clinicians, talking to hospital administrators and policymakers about what the data says um, we can do 
to mitigate some of these risks. And so we do need opioids in modern medicine. And that's because there is severe pain as a result of trauma and acute injury, some chronic conditions, although the the evidence is pretty weak right now on how long we can effectively use opioids in different populations, Um, but some really, uh, uh, I can't lose speak, some um, intractable is what I'm looking for, some real intractable chronic pain, right? There are appropriate uses of opioids. And so what we really need not to do is just say, well, I had to give Travis opioids, so I guess, you know, he's just at risk now. He'll either develop an addiction or he won't. Well, that's not the right way to think about it because we can certainly do better or worse by providing counseling with uh, counseling and education or providing patients with counseling and education, close follow-up, management over the long term, and really trying to do a better job of helping patients who do need opioids to use them only as long as they need and then get off of them. Um, which is really important, and I'm I'm thinking about your your mother went through a surgery, and you talk about this at the end of your book, and um, you of course counsel her and make sure she knows not to take a lot because of what you went through, but she does still need her pain medication, and in the end you had a conversation with her about why she didn't take it all, and she said I knew it was going to be painful, and you and, and that was explained to me. Um, and, and this is part of your conversation in your book that we think that pain should be zero when in actuality, if you have a surgery or an injury or you're in pain, it, it should actually just be livable because we're not going to get to zero again. Exactly right. You know, patient expectation is hugely important. And, you know, this was this was a novel insight to me, but it's not novel, you know, to certain corners in the medical community who have known for a long time here, like expectation setting is really important. If you don't prepare patients for the fact of pain after they have surgery, they're going to be surprised and scared. They're going to demand more medication and they're likely to take more medication. And so a huge part of responsible use of opioids is not withholding them, but saying up front, you're getting, you know, a bilateral knee replacement, which is what my mom was getting. So you're getting two new knees in a single surgery. This is going to be terrible for about two weeks. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, and you're not going to sleep well. It will get better. So, like, don't be scared that this is your new normal. And here's medication that you should use only as you absolutely have to. The goal of opioids is not to get you to zero pain. It's to take the edge off so that you can do the work of healing. That's what opioids are for in these acute, severe situations. And that's a huge change for a lot of the kind of American medical culture, which, yeah, you know, it'd be nice for all of us to take a pain, to take a pill and make the pain go away. Um, But that's, that's really not a great use of these medications. As as one anesthesiologist said to me, um, I can make anybody's pain zero. It's just that you'll be slobbering on the floor if I do it. Right. So that's, yeah. that's not the way we want to utilize morphine and fentanyl uh, to make everybody slobber on the floor. It's to take the edge off and make life livable again. Well, and I, I think also um, having those conversations with patients. And one thing when I was reading your book that kept coming into my head was a, a visit to the ER I had last year after an accident. And my goal at being at ER was to find out um, if I'd severely hurt myself, which it turned out I had, although they, um, that's a different story. They refused to look into it, but they prescribed me morphine. Even though I I only asked for Tylenol, I said I don't want anything more because I don't even know what's wrong. And I was in this room with all these people on IVs. Everybody had a morphine IV, and I thought, well, what? Like this person has the flu, and they have a morphine IV. Like I asked them, and I, you know, I denied such severe um, painkillers. So then they said I couldn't be in an, as much pain as I was claiming, and and it just seemed to be this catch twenty two. And and to me. I was like, why are we giving out this much morphine when we're trying to, you know, cut back on this stuff? <laughs> but but also that I couldn't win because I I was okay with the pain that I was in. Yeah, that's right. And and your intuition there was really good because um so to be clear, I am not saying that everybody should deny pain relief. I I desperately <laughs> sought pain relief for 
weeks in the hospital, right? It was excruciating to be without. But one of the things that's really important is that if you can't feel anything, then you don't know what's wrong with you, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the best reasons to not over-medicate. And it's one of the reasons that pain medication is a a genuinely delicate balance, right? We have to we have to remember that pain medicine is hard, right? We've been treating it like it's easy. If you hurt, you get morphine, right? If you don't hurt, you don't. But it's genuinely hard. And one of the reasons is we need to medicate severe pain sufficiently that patients can do the work of healing. And so think about that knee replacement case again. If you can't do physical therapy because you're in too much excruciating pain, that's actually going to harm your recovery because you need the physical therapy for long-term recovery. But if you medicate to such a degree that you overdo it in physical therapy and you damage this brand new implant in your body, well, that's not great either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You need to be able to feel something and you need to be able to learn from acute pain when it's your body trying to tell you something. Um, But you don't need to feel everything, right? You don't need to be suffering. Well, no, and I I think with what you went through, you know, medication was necessary. Um, It's not normal to explode your foot. And, and, you know, um, what I do is I I work with herbs and supplements, and sometimes people are are surprised that I'm okay with their medication, although I I think there is a place for everything and a time. And when you're in a severe amount of pain or when you're in pain, those things have a place, but then they help you work towards those things like... Like phys- physical therapy or, or, you know, whatever you're doing to work towards um, less pain. No, that seems uh, right to me. And, you know, the idea that there is going to be, you know, the, the hot word, the uh, hot phrase is, you know, multimodal approach, you know, integrative approach, holistic approach. And, um, you know, for, not not for everybody will it be everything, so not everybody will be interested in herbs. And I talk a lot about acupuncture because I was so blown away by the evidence in favor of acupuncture. And, and for, not for everybody, you know, acupuncture is not for everybody. But the idea that it's just almost never going to be that a pill is the complete solution, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the way our bodies work. That's not the way medicine works. And so sometimes the pill can be helpful to aid in a more holistic uh, solution, but it's very rarely the case that however much medical marketers would like us to think otherwise, right, um, it's right. not the case that a pill is the answer. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Travis Reeder, and we're discussing his book, In Pain, and we'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Travis Reeder, and we're discussing his book, In Pain. So, Travis, um, in your your journey, you uh, decided to start talking about what happened to you, and, and now you talk about harm reduction strategies. What are those? So, harm reduction strategies are kind of one arm of a multifaceted approach to the broader drug overdose crisis facing North America. Um, Well, and elsewhere in the world, but (laughs) this is what we're talking about now. Um, So, you know, one of the things that I, I, one of the points I get to in the book, you know, I'm largely talking about my entrance into the world of dependence, addiction, drugs, overdose, and and the affiliated risks and dangers through the, the medical establishment. And that's really important because the medical establishment has um, kind of been badly handling this for well over a century. But one of the things that I discover early in my research is uh, this doesn't solve the kind of broader crisis that we're facing. And so anybody who's awake, right, knows that there is this broader drug overdose crisis happening. And the fact that opioids are used in healthcare links healthcare to the opioid overdose crisis, but they're not a perfect overlap. So the Venn diagram of these things is only a partial overlap. So what happens is I kind of get to this point in my exploration and in the book where I say, you know, it sure feels like, you know, doctors have been so bad at prescribing and and prescribing certainly played a role in getting the overdose crisis off the ground that it would be nice if the answer was just you fix prescribing and then and then you fix the overdose crisis. And it's just really sad and really disappointing that that's not true, that the answer is far more complex than that. And the reason is there are, you know, millions of people already living with opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. And so what they need is far more than just not being initiated into this, um, you know, very unfun club. So, Broadly, we can think about drug policy in a bunch of different buckets. And if you think about prescription opioids as a problem for drug policy, then all you're thinking about is one small facet, which is supply. You're thinking about the number of pills going out in the world having some effect on whether or not people develop an addiction and eventually overdose. Notice, you can also focus on supply in another way by focusing on, say, illicit fentanyl or heroin, right? Yes. And so the war on drugs mentality already focuses exclusively on supply. And one of the things that I thought was most helpful to articulate is that if we focus entirely on prescriptions because we focus entirely on supply, we're actually just kind of taking our war on drugs idea and transitioning it from the illicit market over to healthcare. And it did not work in the illicit market. It has all these harmful implications there. And it turned out it doesn't work in the healthcare field either, and it has all sorts of harmful implications there as well. So this is a long way to get to the answer to your question. So what is harm reduction? Well, harm reduction is one of the things that we need beyond looking at supply. So we can look at supply. We can also, of course, look at demand and ask, why do people take so many drugs? And you might uncover things like, you know, joblessness and poverty and hopelessness track whether or not drugs look attractive. And so we might try to treat demand instead of just supply. Of course, people need treatment if they're suffering from substance use disorder. And um, there's a just a, a profound lack of treatment accessibility. But there's this one other component which is even if you focus on supply and demand, even if you're trying to get people into treatment, not everybody is going to be ready to enter treatment at a given moment. And the drug supply is so deadly now with all of this fentanyl and its analogs out in the heroin supply, as well as, you know, cocaine supply. Um, the, the supply is so deadly that one of the things we have to do is keep people alive until they're ready to seek treatment. And that's basically where harm reduction comes in. It, of course, does other things, too. If you um, 
pretty, you know, if you give people clean syringes, you're also mitigating um, the chances that they get HIV or Hep C, right? So you can reduce harm in other ways. But the kind of most obvious, easy way to understand it is if you want to keep people alive so that they have a chance at getting their life back, um, they need to not die from an overdose the next time they take drugs. Well, you know, I, I, I agree with you on that one. And and one thing I think is, I think the word casualty um, is really good for, for people like you or people who definitely have, have been on opioids longer, the what you called legacy patients that in the 90s were overprescribed because we thought these medications were safe. And we have this war on drugs and we're now punishing people who are doing what their doctors told them. Um, you know, I'm very aware of a lot of, um, uh, you know, pain patients out there that and hearing a lot of stories of how they're suddenly um, told that their doctor will not prescribe their medication anymore. So where they do not, you have the chance to taper off your medication, they're not given that opportunity and they're suddenly cold turkey off of something they've been on for years and are severely dependent on. And this is not the right way to go about this so-called war on drugs because we're punishing the wrong people. Exactly right. I mean, so if you take a patient that already has a profound dependence because they've been on opioids for years or decades, that means at a minimum, if you take away their medication or taper them too abruptly, they'll get just desperately ill. Uh, and I'm so familiar with what that feels like, right? That's at a minimum. And then, of course, it's also possible that they have an underlying opioid use disorder um, in a more severe sense where they're actually going to wrestle with addiction if they lose their supply. Um, so... So here's what we're actually doing if we force people off their medication. We're expanding the harm, right? So at a minimum, they're going to suffer the harms of withdrawal if it's done badly, uh, perhaps the harm of um, unmitigated pain if the opioids were effective in treating some underlying pain, right? So that's one sort of harm. But then if some of them have an opioid use disorder or fear the withdrawal so much that they're then willing to medicate themselves with any substance that they can get their hands on, well, you might actually drive people to the black market, right? So this is what I meant by, you know, thinking about the war on drugs mentality transitioning from illicit to the healthcare system. If we focus entirely on supply and say, the problem is too many pills, so let's cut people off. Well, then in the same way that criminalizing, you know, in the um, broader society, criminalizing drug use drove people to more dangerous practices, well, Focusing on supply and trying to push people off their medications might actually drive some of them to the black market where heroin is cheap, but it's also laced with fentanyl. And you've taken them off a pharmaceutical-grade, fairly well-regulated substance to a phenomenally dangerous game of Russian roulette where every dose has the potential to kill you. Um, it, you know, I, I agree with you in that conversation I, with Ben Westhoff a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, I, we talk in length about what's going on there. And, and then I was very excited to have this conversation with you because this is exactly what's happening is we've got patients who are in pain, who are denied their medication, who if they are going to be forced into an immediate withdrawal, are going to probably lose their jobs, their homes, their families, and everything. And so they want to stay on the medication to keep the pain down and not go through the symptoms, especially without any monitoring. They're just done this cold turkey. So then they go and get medication, get drugs off the street that aren't regulated and can kill them. And there's a whole different ballgame going on there. And, And I think that you know, this is why the word casualty is a really good one, because this war is being struck on the wrong people in the wrong places, and we're not doing this correctly at all. You know, you brought up this conversation, started with harm reduction, and so a really important question um, that I started addressing more explicitly in my writing since the book is, Basically, what would it look like if we took a broad harm reduction approach and applied it to the healthcare uh, system? And so, you know, at least intellectually, at least among expert communities, harm reduction for illicit drug use is is gaining real traction, right? You know, the public health community just basically says with a fairly uniform voice, 
harm reduction is evidence-based. You know, people who use drugs should be provided with sterile syringes, sterile cookers. They shouldn't be, you know, using water out of puddles to inject. Um, you know, we can distribute naloxone and save lots of lives. We can distribute fentanyl test strips uh, so that, you know, folks can decide whether or not to do test shots or change their dose. And then we can also even um, have these safe consumption spaces where, you know, you go into a brick-and-mortar space and have a community around you uh, should you overdose and their healthcare providers, et cetera. So this is like gaining real traction among experts, even if there's a lot of detractors among the public and politicians. Well, what's really interesting is that that reasoning applies perfectly well to pharmaceutical opioid use as well. And it's not really being talked about very loudly. And so one of the things I want to say is, yeah, for all of these patients who are desperately afraid to go off their long-term opioid therapy and who might be willing to seek alternative therapy elsewhere if they were forced off, a harm reduction approach would say just allow them to remain on their dose as long as they're stable and in good health. Um, and that's really hard for physicians to do because what it feels like to a lot of them is basically just prescribing a, um, a safe supply of opioids that aren't indicated by their medical training if they feel like they're treating addiction or dependence rather than treating pain. Most of them signed up to use that sort of dosing for pain. So it's a very interesting phenomenon that harm reduction applies pretty straightforwardly, but um, the healthcare community is pretty reticent to have that conversation. Um, and it's definitely an important one. Um, you know, I think that what came into my mind um, is that we need like a liaison in between the, the doctors and the patients when the patient is going to be tapering off. So a specialist, and it didn't seem like there was one for someone in your position. You had to be severely addicted and on them for a really long time, and it'd be disrupting your life for you to get help. And why do we have to get to that point for you to get help? Harm yeah. reduction should yeah. be it hasn't caused any harm yet, and you want to do this safely and properly. Um, or we need to educate doctors and as well as patients about what is happening, what they're putting in their bodies and how to deal with it properly. Yeah, no, I think you took, <laughs> you did not go out and teach my book. You got all the right lessons. Um, but yeah, the education of physicians is crucially important. And there is um, at least some movement towards getting that sort of what you were thinking of as liaison. Um, so at my institution, John Hopkins, there actually is now, it's, it's new since my accident, but there's an outpatient center that deals specifically with opioid tapering uh, for complex patients. And it's not really designed specifically for cases like mine, although, although I think they would certainly have taken me if I had, if it had existed and I had called them. They're, they're actually dealing more with patients um, you know, who have been on very long-term, say, methadone maintenance and who are preparing for surgery or something like that. So, so kind of more complex patients. But this idea that, yeah, there actually is a specialty skill that's required but has been overlooked, which is getting routine opioid therapy patients off of a medication that as a matter of practice will cause dependence. Like, surely we should have realized that that was necessary, and we just didn't. And so it's this massive gap in the healthcare system. I think there's some recognition of it now. When I go around and talk, people nod their heads in agreement and start thinking about ways to do it. But it's not going to be a super easy fix. It's, it's going to take money, resources, time, and education, which, of course, are, are all kind of hard to come by. Well, and we spent a long time thinking that these medications were safe, which is why they were overprescribed in the 90s. And um, so I think it takes us a long time to change these schools of thought. If you were taught that in school, if you prescribed at that time, you know, you're just going to go down that road and to make those changes and to be educated. Um, you know, right now, I think a, a lot of doctors are afraid. So there's the opposite happening. And we need something in the middle that is safer for patients. Right in the middle. You got it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You can go out on tour and 
<laughs> All right, yay! <laughs> I got a new yeah. job. <laughs> um, you know, I I definitely appreciate that you shared your story. I probably could have talked to you for hours. I'm really passionate about this subject, but unfortunately, we only had an hour. So um, I encourage everybody to read your book. Um, if they want any more information, how can they get a hold of you or find your book? Sure. Well, I certainly appreciate your passion. Um, the the book is easy to find. It's uh, available through any independent bookstore, through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble, um, and so it's called In Pain: A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. And I have a, a website, which is just travisreader.com, and you know I link to various ways to buy it, but also um, you can listen to uh, you know the first several pages of the audiobook, which I narrated, which which was a really cool experience actually. Um, yeah, so lots of information to find on my website, and, and I don't hide my contact information. I know some authors do, but um, anyone who's interested to email me, uh, can, that can be done either through my personal webpage or my faculty webpage at John Hopkins. All my information is public. Well, um, thank you so much, and thank you for sharing your story. I know from experience that it, it's nerve-wracking to do so, but it helps so many people. And um, I think the, the bravery of coming forward and continuing to share your story should be commended. Well, I definitely appreciate that. And I appreciate you spending not just one episode, but uh, but a couple episodes on the issue of drugs and the war on drugs and pain and pain medicine. So, uh, so thanks very much for that. Um, and thank you. And if anybody wants more information on my story and what I went through to get back to health, you can find that on dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or if you prefer it, social media platform. And thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.